This episode is brought to you by lynda.com, the online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. lynda.com is for problem solvers, for the curious, for people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master Excel, learn negotiation tactics, build a website, or boost your Photoshop skills. Go to lynda.com and feed your curious mind. Some courses worth checking out are building a note-taking app for iOS 8. I'm a big fan of this one, and I'm going to keep pushing on you. Learn how to build a complete iOS 8 app from scratch with the iOS SDK and Xcode in this project-based course. With a lynda.com membership, you can watch and learn from top experts who are passionate about teaching, stream thousands of video courses on demand, you can download tutorials to watch on the go, including access on your iOS or Android device, probably where you're listening to this right now. Your lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, all for one flat rate. I want you to visit lynda.com forward slash WT and sign up for a free 10-day trial. That's lynda, L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash W-T. One of the fathers of modern space travel is a guy by the name of Werner von Braun. Um, and as you may have guessed from the name, uh, dude is definitely German. He was born in 1912 and at a very young age became obsessed with going to the moon, with space travel. And Germany in that period, there was this whole... Um, movement of people who were like basically trying to do rocketry in their backyards. Um, there are some films of this. And obviously it was very dangerous and uh, a lot of people died, including um, some of Von Braun's uh, collaborators and friends. And uh, he went on to work for uh, the Nazi. And so he wound up making uh, what were called by the British the doodlebugs. Um, that were dropped on London. Uh, it sounded like a really cute name. And I yeah. knew it couldn't be nearly as cute as his no. name was. No, it was it was not cute. <laughs> that can be said for sure. Um, fortunately, they were not terribly accurate, which is uh, where the nickname came from. But so anyway, uh, it's uh, the, the formal name of these rockets were the um, the V2s. Um, and after the war, um, there was this thing the U.S. did called Operation Paperclip, where we basically scooped up a bunch of scientists from Nazi Germany and took them. So he worked on the U.S.'s ballistic missile program uh, on intermediate range uh, missiles uh, before the group basically moved over to become what is now NASA. And he was one of the biggest promoters of space flight in the U.S. ever. And is part of the reason why, uh, why we put people on the moon. He died in 1977. And then all of the stuff that we had kind of known about his Nazi history came out. Uh. Uh, I mean, people had, had known he was involved in the Nazi party, but he had said, you know, I wasn't really affiliated. I had no idea what was going on. And then there, be you know, it became obvious that there was documentation that he was at least partially aware of the slave labor that was assembling his rockets. Was he writing like a journal or he's like, oh, no, no, I wasn't involved at all. Dear diary, I'm a monster. Uh <laughs> no, I mean, I don't even know that he would have considered himself a monster because anything that that got him to his goal of putting humans in space was justifiable in his own eyes, I think. So he was essentially pretty much disgraced. And if you go to the Kennedy Space Center, 
he's been sort of whitewashed out of NASA history. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that space travel has this super complicated history that is hard to discuss without also discussing uh, warfare because those two things are very closely entwined. Um, I guess just to end on a brighter note, I had heard of Operation Paperclip, but are you able to speak about uh, Russia's Operation Clip uh, Paper EU? <laughs> no, I wish I could. That's something I would love to learn more about. Mm, yeah, I, I believe it was uh, a Dr. Uh, Yakov Shmirov, MD, who did most of that work. Yeah. <laughs> I hate myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally going to throw myself through a window. <laughs> this earnest story, and then I ruin it. Hello, and welcome to What's Tech, a podcast from The Verge. My name is Christopher Thomas Plant, and I will be your host today. I am joined by my friend, my colleague, The Verge's science editor, Elizabeth Lopato. Uh, thank you for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. We are talking about space today, not Nazis. Uh, I I can see how you can be confused, but the two are intertwined. If you've ever played the Wolfenstein games, you already knew this. Um, wow, way for me to be reductive about a very serious topic. <laughs> um, let, let's run away from whatever it is I'm doing and just start off with the basics like we always do. Uh, Liz, what is space travel in its purest sense? Uh, the idea is that you put – well, I, I guess there are sort of two ways to think about it, right? Uh, the idea is, is that you could put something in sort of the interstellar – not even interstellar. That's maybe the wrong way to put it. You can put something in the medium that's outside of our planet. Um, so you can think about it uh, two ways. The first way is, you know, um, satellites uh, – um, like the Sputnik 1, which was launched in 1957. Um that was the first kind of uh, mechanized space travel. But I think the way that most of us like to think about it uh, is instead um, uh, with, with astronauts and cosmonauts where we take a person and we put them in a highly designed machine and we shoot them off the planet. Am I crazy? I, I had heard that an astronaut is an an American astronaut and a cosmonaut is a Russian astronaut? Is That's that exactly right. Um, Russians prefer cosmonaut. I'm not totally sure why there's a difference. Um, but yeah, so when you're talking about Americans and usually also folks from the EU, you're talking about astronauts. But when you're talking about Russians, you're talking about cosmonauts. Wow. I love the Cold War. Um, <laughs> what is, I mean, how long have humans been pursuing the notion of a space travel? Gosh. Um, well, so it's sort again, it sort of depends on how you look at it, because astronomy is actually one of our oldest science sciences. It's the science that's the basis for a lot of everything else we do. Right. Um, it's how we learned how to navigate. Um, and you see all of these um, primary, you know, very early cultures that have these uh, monuments that are basically they exist to help figure out what kind of time of the year you're in and do you need to like harvest your crops, that kind of thing. Um, so that, uh, in that sense, it's very, very old. Um, but in the sense of we're going to send people to space, boy, I think, I think we got to credit H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. Um, I think those were sort of the, the springing points for a lot of the imagination that would follow. 
I, I didn't put this in the notes, so I apologize to spring this question on you. <laughs> no, you, it's totally fine. You're in a bar, okay? Everyone's been drinking a lot. Galileo, uh, Tico Brahe, and Kepler are all there, and they fight each other. Who would probably win? Oh, my God, Brahe. No question. No question. Um, Kepler is, is my favorite of the bunch and maybe the best scientist of the three. Uh, but he was also a sick, a sickly boy growing up, and he grew up into a small and sickly man. And Galileo was a lot of bluster with no real bite. But uh, as you may know, uh, Brahe uh, had his nose shot off in a duel. <laughs> Uh, and wore, um, I want to, I, I forget what the, the metal alloy it was. I want to say it was gold, but maybe that's wrong. Um, that he, like he wore uh, over, over the spot where his nose used to be and would polish uh, when he was thinking. I like natural scientists so much because they're like more interesting sometimes than even the insanely interesting things they found. It's just, <laughs> they're, they're so good. Um, sorry. Sidetracked. Um, what is, I guess, the earliest example of actual space travel happening then? Is it, is it satellites? Um, so satellites I, would be what I would count first, and that would be 1957. That was the Russians with Sputnik, um, which was sort of what scared the hell out of everybody in the U.S. Uh, and pushed them to fund NASA. Um, but the first human in space didn't happen until 1961, um, and that was also the Soviets. Um uh, I'm going to totally butcher his name because I've only ever read it and never heard it aloud. Um, but Yuri Gagarin uh, was the first human in space. You, you mentioned NASA. Uh, talk about an obvious question that I actually know very little about. But what is NASA and why was it like sincerely why was it formed? Was it purely to compete with the Soviet Union? Yeah. Well, this goes back to Von Braun. Um he had this idea that you could monitor your enemies from space from like some kind of – I mean if you look at the, the, the models and the illustrations, it's like almost a little Death Star <laughs> that has people aboard it. Um, and this was before we uh, started to mechanize um, a lot of information in a very serious way. Um, so the idea that you could have satellites doing this instead or robotics um, – I think hadn't maybe occurred to him or just wasn't as romantic as the idea of having people up there. Um, and so that's he started to sell this as, you know, a defense uh, move for the U.S. And when Sputnik was launched, that really sort of lit a fire under um, various uh, politicians that uh, paved the way for the kind of massive budget you need in order to get to space. This this boggles my mind because it feels like living in America today, defense spending is like the one guarantee we have of everything. And yet NASA is, uh, maybe it's cruel to say it, kind of a shadow of its former self. What happened along the way? Well, um, part of what happened was that the Cold War intensified. And once we'd had the sort of propaganda victory of landing first on the moon, um, politicians almost immediately began cutting NASA's budget. So it was a shell of its former self really by the 70s and started to achieve um, 
more prominence. I mean, we're actually, I think we're seeing NASA a little bit on the rebound right now. I think we're living in a period where NASA is has, has kind of shaken off that post-moon um, malaise, let's say, although that's not totally fair um, because NASA does a bunch of really important things with satellites in terms of Earth science as well. Um, but, you know, the idea that we would have ambitious projects to launch people back into space um, and, and beyond the ISS, uh, the International Space Station, which is stationed in low Earth orbit, like we haven't been to space in a while. So... Um, we're seeing these these very exciting programs starting up again um, with a, an eventual goal of getting us to Mars. I, I mean, before even Mars, why is it so hard to get back to just the moon? Because the thing that I always hear, and I have no idea if it's true, is, oh, you know, those, sh- those, those spaceships, they're, they're no more powerful than the TI-83 calculator that you did your algebra homework on. Uh, and if that's true, it seems like other than the fuel, and I'm guessing the fuel is a pretty big budget, then it should be pretty easy to get somebody back up there. Well, uh, I'm going to use a metaphor that I liked a lot that I've heard um, from a couple of space scientists, um, which is that you could get your grandmother's cake recipe, um, but if you've never cooked it before, you're not going to come up with your grandmother's cake, you know? So... um, these the the things that we built for the Apollo program, you know, the, all of the people who were intimately familiar with how they worked, um, that would that would make it f- really safe for us to to use those things. They're not around anymore. <laughs> They're just not. Um, so, Time is the scariest of all enemies. It really <laughs> is. The There's War. no winning. So, um, you know, even if even if we wanted to use that old equipment, the people who would have the expertise to run it um, aren't really around. So there would still be a tremendous learning curve. Um, But obviously the idea with newer equipment is not only could you um, potentially get more information and have better contact with the astronauts and maybe provide better safety, better durability, better shielding from radiation, because there's a lot of radiation in space. it would be something that because we had built it, we would know how to use it. You know, it would be the cake recipe that you would come up with yourself after having experimented 100, 200, 500 times and figuring out what the perfect cake was. Sure. Why, why do people believe the moon landing was a hoax? I know that's a very loaded question to ask and kind of, I think, a frustrating question that comes along with a lot of science in general. There's a lot of suspicion around all types of things uh, in science. But I, I just can't, I've never been able to figure out this one because it feels like the people who would think a moon landing is a hoax are also the people who would want to believe a moon landing is real. You know, I, I really think that I think it comes from an underestimation of human capability. Um, because it seems impossibly hard to get to the moon, right? Like, for us. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and so I, I think um, it is an easy thing to say, oh, this was clearly faked, rather than acknowledge all of the work and effort that went into it. Um, and also all of the mistakes and deaths, because especially in the early days of rocketry, a lot of people died testing rockets. Uh, we're going to fast forward past the the highs and lows of of nasa and what i guess space trouble was for most people uh, like me who grew up in the 80s and 90s to today with privatized space travel uh what 
what is it? And, and is it partly responsible for motivating NASA and this the rebound you described? That's a good question. Um, so basically, uh, there are a bunch of small private companies uh, that started working uh, with NASA on getting people to space. And some of the more famous ones, of course, are SpaceX, uh, Virgin Galactic. And then there are a couple of other people in the field as well. Um, Boeing makes a lot of stuff. And there's the, they're part of the United Launch Alliance. Um, and uh, gosh, Sierra Nevada Corporation. A few other companies do make um, engines and rockets and so on. Um, and Essentially, what's happening is instead of NASA making these things in-house, they're contracting um, to these these groups. And uh, it's it's particularly notable, I guess, um, because we haven't sent our own astronauts to the ISS in quite some time. We've been hitching rides with the Russians. Um, and last year, our relationship with Russia deteriorated politically. Um, and we announced that we were going to be sending our own astronauts again. So SpaceX is one of the contractors that's involved with that. I think the other one is Boeing. Um, but the idea is that we would, you know, be able to have those capabilities again instead of having them in-house at NASA by, by having them uh, with contractors. Now, when I picture, I guess, the idea of privatized space travel, I picture... Uh, Human, I mean, not humans. Well, yeah, sure, human, like normal, normal folk, you know, or celebrities going into space. Uh, space I, I, tourism, if you space will. Space tourism, sure. Are, are these the same companies, or is that a whole different thing? Uh, there's some overlap, um, but I think the space tourism is mostly, as far as I can tell, Virgin Galactic's game. Um, most of the other companies, including uh, Blue Orbit, which is, I think, is it Jeff Bezos or Bezos? Whatever his name Bezos, is, that's his company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, they're thinking about not just uh, launching humans, but launching satellites um, or anything else that you might potentially need launched into space. Um, and I know asteroid mining has been brought up as a source of minerals for rare earth minerals. Uh, maybe that's a possibility at some point in the future. Uh, who knows? Um, but yeah, so so space space tourism is sort of a distinct thing from some of these other companies' business models. It feels, and maybe now I'm like the uh, the paranoid hoax conspiracy person here. But when I think about, uh, I guess Amazon uh, getting into space or Virgin getting into space, not for humans but for satellites, kind of like um, wealthy people taking uh, land claims. Uh, and in, in the first area that's had land claims in history in like a century. Uh, but, but, but I guess laying groundwork for uh, communication piping, uh, essentially, up in space, knowing that people would be there eventually. Is that crazy? Or, or what, what are I they doing? I don't think that's crazy at all. Okay. Um, I think some of it is laying communication piping for potential space travel. I think some of it is just trying to... Uh, keep up with the booming need for communications here on earth, right? Like, yeah. just think about, you know, how much, how much data we use. And it's all like satellite data often, um, day to day, right? On our phones. I don't see that changing anytime soon, right? So if you're a telecommunications company, um, having a lot of these satellites and being able to have backups if, if some are hit by like solar flares 
or space junk or they go down, um, that's pretty crucial to provide uninterrupted service. So I think that's part of the reason why these companies are looking at that as a, as a strategy. Returning to space. If humans go, you know, finally get back to space, maybe we go to Mars. I want to go to Mars. I just want you to know that. I, I want to go to Mars, too. I, I've read a lot of science fiction. It was really important to me as a kid. I, like, dream about us getting to Mars. If, if we do that, is it going to be because, like, Amazon had financial reasons to be involved in space and finally people cared because capitalism? That, that, that seems like the most, like, return to Cold War thinking, like— that, that we could possibly come up with. And it seems like part of what's fueling this returning interest in space technology. I think that's part of it. You know, I think that the really ambitious stuff where there isn't necessarily an obvious profit motive is always going to belong to NASA. And so Mars is going to be NASA, you know, um, because it's it's a really long trip. We have no idea if it's going to work out. We don't even know if we can land people on the surface. Like if we have like the capabilities in terms of um, slowing uh, spacecraft that would be as heavy as the craft that would have to get them there. You know what I mean? I mean, the the landing that we did for the Curiosity rover might not be so great for humans that you want to arrive <laughs> intact. <laughs> you know, uh, that rover can probably take a lot more abuse than people can. Um, so I, I really think that it's going to be one of those weird public-private things where NASA does all of the pioneering risky stuff. And once they've sort of cut a swath, um, the private companies come in behind them, which is a little bit what we're seeing now in terms of launching people and launching supplies to the ISS and uh, launching satellite communications. I mean, that didn't used to be something that SpaceX did. You know what I mean? I, I'm going to ask you that awful town hall question, but like, I am a taxpayer, and I want to know my money is going to good uses, no handouts, not even to space Martian people. Why should I throw all my money into space when we have so many problems here on Earth? Well, I have many answers to that question. <laughs> I'm glad. Uh, the first one is that um, this is a really good way of providing jobs that aren't military, um, that, you know, and improving our expertise and technical prowess. Um, you know, one of the things I was at a, a launch in January and one of the things that I heard from the Siemens representative, um, who was there was that, you know, Siemens tests, um, a lot of these, these crafts before they ever go into space. Right. And then they turn around to sell the software, uh, that, that you can test with. And they say, hey, listen, we solved the hardest problem with this. We landed, you know, the Curiosity rover on Mars using the software. Don't you want it, GM? <laughs> <laughs> um, and a lot of the, the things that we've done where we've had to shrink things to meet some sort of um, technological problem that comes with launching something into space, that ends up being used broadly elsewhere uh, beyond its intended purpose. So it's a nice way of generating... Um, technology that then becomes broadly useful, um, not necessarily in the way that it was initially uh, thought of. So that's answer one. Um, but answer two, uh, not to get deeply philosophical on you. Um, Go ahead. <laughs> but pretty much since the dawn of human existence, we've been curious about space. We've been curious about the stars and what goes on at night and what's a shooting star and what's this eclipse thing. Um, 
I think it's worthwhile to address those very human questions. I mean, that's that search for meaning is part of us, too, as well as, you know, feeding ourselves and clothing ourselves and having shelter. So I don't think it's wrong to want to support that. And then I guess the third piece of the answer, <laughs> I've thought about this a lot, right? Because why should you send people to space when you could potentially be curing malaria? Um, and the answer is that you can probably do both. Um, there's no reason why, you know, um, there's no reason why pursuing space travel precludes pursuing other things. Um, and NASA's budget compared to, for instance, our military spending is a drop in the bucket. I mean, if you're asking about um, where we can cut the budget, I think you look pretty hard at military and military contractors first because that's where you can make the biggest dent. Um, whereas NASA is doing stuff like, you know, providing us information on climate change. You can now start to figure out um, what's happened after an earthquake or what's happened um, after a catastrophic fire using the satellites that NASA set up. And um, use that data to help try to rescue people. Um, again, this is not the, the original intended purpose, but it turns out it works really, really well um, in, in disasters. So, you know, I think this is worth investing in. Um, and no matter what, Boeing makes lots of money. Yeah. <laughs> Our contractors right. will still be happy. Right. Boeing and Lockheed, like, yeah, I mean, they're going to be making a ton of money, whether it's for military or for NASA. So why not have it you know, uh, be pointed towards something that's not explicitly aimed at killing people. It's I've, just a thought. <laughs> I, have, I have one final question that I guess is kind of connected to that. Um, I like to all, end all episodes with the point in which I, I die. <laughs> that's, that's the future that I, I can't escape. The end of the end. Is <laughs> the end of the end. <laughs> um, will I go to space before that happens? <laughs> Man, I don't know. Um, no, you're supposed to say yes. You're this. I was, uh, I was so sure that you were going to give me a positive answer here. Well, so it depends. Is the answer okay? Uh, me not uh, I'm pretty dying sure soon? that space tourism is going to be a thing before you die. Okay, got it. Uh, but it's going to be probably much like adventure tourism. You know, like where you know that there's a possibility you'll die climbing Everest, for example. Uh, you know what I mean? Sure. So if that's a a a risk you're willing to take if you are like me and are you know willing to go see something incredible with the possibility the outside possibility that you might not come back um yeah then i you know if you can get the money together i don't see why you couldn't make it to space before you die i'll take that <laughs> that's better than no space at all i guess <laughs> um cool thank you thank you for joining me this was a really fun episode oh thank you it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure i uh I hope it turns out well and isn't too much of a pain in the ass to edit. Oh, don't worry. We always leave that to our producer, John Lagomarsino, who gets to do the most enjoyable job at TheVerge.com, editing this into a masterpiece. Um, <laughs> thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of What's Tech. You can find us on iTunes or the podcast uh, platform software service of your choice, but go to iTunes and leave a review. It goes a long way to getting the show out to more people. And so does tweeting about the show. We are uh, at What's Tech on Twitter. We also write for this website called TheVerge.com. You should go there and read stuff. There's lots of great stories about science and space. Some of my favorite stories, I would say. I would say my very favorite stories. <laughs> uh, and, and that's it. Until next time, we'll see you later. Bye.
Thank you again for listening to our show. And thank you again to our sponsor for this episode, lynda.com. Just a reminder, your lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, all for one flat rate. Whether you're looking to become an industry expert, or you're just passionate about a hobby, or maybe you just want to learn something new, I want you to visit lynda.com forward slash WTE and sign up for a free 10-day trial. That's lynda.com slash WT. My name is C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-T-H-O-M-A-S-P-L-A-N-T-E at T-H-E-V-E-R-T-E. We'll see you L-A-T-E-R. <laughs>